This is Death by DVD, and I am Harry Scott Sullivan, your host. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. On this episode, we are going Friedkin crazy, exploring the works of William Friedkin. Undercover investigating the seedy underground dark side of podcasting, the Linus Fitness Center is here with me. And this episode is going to be a very special one. We have a special guest. We have James Ellis. Hi, I'm James. Uh, James Ellis. I'm a uh, Cardiff-based uh, artist and journalist, uh, creator of Weeping Tudor Productions. Um, yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> I don't blather anymore in the intro. Greetings, Earthlings. We interrupt this transmission with a message of great importance. It's me, your host, Harry, from the future, kind of. We actually just interrupted the show because I want to talk about James for a moment, Mr. James Ellis of Weeping Tutor Productions. When we originally recorded this episode, James was just a guest, but since that recording, he has become a host here at Death by DVD, and we are incredibly lucky to have James. He is a writer, a performer, a theater and film journalist, and an all-around lovely person. And like I just said, we are very, very lucky to have him join us in the graveyard. So now, we can get the show back on after just one more thing. The episode that you are currently listening to is available now, completely uncut, on our Patreon. This is a four-hour-long episode, and you can hear it totally unedited, absolutely uncut, on our Patreon. And you have probably realized now, this is not four hours long. So this is not the whole episode. This is part one, baby! Would you like to hear the entire show uncut and in one big piece? Just head over to www.deathbydvd.com and visit the page titled Patreon. And now, back to the show. If you've been listening to this, we've been going Friedkin crazy, and I'm going to keep saying that over and over again for about a month. We're working on William Friedkin, everything but The Exorcist at this point, and this episode is a, a really difficult subject to talk, well, subject matter rather, to talk about. We have two movies. We're doing a double feature of The Boys in the Band by William Friedkin 
and Cruising, which is also by William Friedkin. One of these movies is probably the most hated, um, I'd say, giallo ever, and I I really am going to fucking call it a giallo. It's an American New York giallo, and it's the most offensive movie of all time to the gay community, I think. Maybe? (laughs) I don't know who we're going to offend, but I'm sure someone at some point. It won't be me. (laughs) So to go into the light before the dark, we are going to begin this episode with a movie called The Boys in the Band, which is based on a play by Mart Crowley. It's an off-Broadway play from 1968. Friedkin made the movie in 1970, shot in 1969. This came in between a weird era for him. He had previously done documentary-based films, and then did the Sonny and Cher movie. One of the Sonny and Cher movies, not just the Sonny and Cher movie. And it it is exactly what you would think it to be. It's a, it's a fucking Sonny and Cher movie. But it, it really lets you crawl into, I think, what is going to happen next. You have a film after that, uh, maybe before or after, called The Birthday Party. And then you move into The Boys in the Band and... W- Friedkin's work is is so celebrated and so well known for The Exorcist, and it's fucking great. I I love The Exorcist. I think this might be the the top of of his his work. I think this might be one of the most intriguing character studies that doesn't necessarily uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem to involve his normal. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say. I guess, but it doesn't seem to involve the normal amount of nihilism and hatred for the world that is is really a focal point in Friedkin's work. And I don't want to say the guy hates the world, but he... I, I don't know if he likes it. <laughs> I'm not sure. This movie offers something different, and it, I, I find it incredibly personal and really, really beautiful and thought-provoking. And that's all I fucking ask for. Yeah, uh, it's just certainly... Um, there's a lot more light amongst the shade in this movie than in a lot of his other stuff although i mean the the version you've never seen of the exorcist ends on a more upbeat note but i prefer the theatrical cut where it's just uh you know everything's a bit left you know up to interpretation i think that's something that really is fluent and works with friedkin career-wise is when you watch his movies you can kind of expect uh, very specific shots very specific visuals but when it comes to the flow of what he is presenting on screen nothing is is what it seems and the boys in the band presumably is about a, a, a birthday party and it's a birthday party of all gay friends and one straight friend is coming by and that sounds all right it sounds like a really blase kind of boring movie and it's William Friedkin nothing is is what it appears to be and go I've watched this about three times now and it every time I see it and I find this to be true with almost everything that Friedkin has done you can't help but see more and more that was left to detail and the characters that we're dealing with are are all us are all absolutely every single one of us in the world and you have this pretense that they're all gay, and it's very strange for me with William Friedkin because he's a, we have talked about this on episodes before. He's very, very into Catholicism. I, he he loves that Jesus guy. You have something that doesn't even seem quite like him because he seems a bit judgmental at times, and here he's truly exposing himself. And I, 
I find it almost strange but uncanny that he used homosexuality as a subject matter that seems almost more Catholic than anything else. That he was trying to almost present his guilt on screen and used homosexuality as the sub-base because this play was fucking wonderful. I, I would adore being able to see this any any format, any way. It's, it's not just lyrically enticing, but itself i i mean i'm repeating myself but it's just a fucking very personal subject matter i think everyone can look into this and find some sort of revelation through the characters yeah um i i <laughs> haven't done a, a little bit more reading uh since we last recorded um Friedkin's parents were jewish so um although he does um seem to you know be matey with some priests um and including the ones that were involved in the exorcist i don't know that he is catholic although he seems sympathetic to them but he's matey with all kinds of people i mean he has he just stands catholicism i guess like he's really into it it's it's his passion project <laughs> it's, it's a weird we like ultraman he likes catholicism That's... i guess so it's kind of similar <laughs> especially in the return of ultraman <laughs> It it makes sense when you look at the person, uh, the personal work that William Friedkin has made, rather, because it's it's so anarchistic. Nothing makes sense, but at the same time, it's the most truthful sense you'll ever see. And and one of the movies we're going to get to later on, nothing makes sense, and everything is is confusing with intent. So now it even adds another layer to this that William Friedkin's not Catholic; he just cosplays as a Catholic. Yeah, but um. Like I said, he, he he's mates with police. Uh, sorry, with priests. He's mates with policemen, though. Um, in the movie we'll talk about later, he doesn't portray mm. them in the best light. Um, and also, well, I'm I'm sort of skipping ahead to cruising. Sorry, but he was also mates with uh, a crime boss that let them uh, shoot in his club. Um, <laughs> well, he had actual policemen consulting on the film as well it's uh, it's a bit of a weird <laughs> we've got the light before the darkness and then we get into a lot of weird uh dirty stuff throughout this episode it, it it's gonna go into a rabbit yeah, you hole. two are you two are obsessed with cruising it's Sorry, like you've, yeah. you've both watched it more than me <laughs> yeah and it's like you know linus linus said oh james you know for tonight we need a gay and it's like well look i <laughs> look Look no more. <laughs> That's exactly how it happened too. It was like, you know what? I we've don't know got, if we can talk about this. We've movie got to have the gay. It's like I'm, I'm coming to Bristol. I'm coming to Bristol. Say, say no more. I'm here. <laughs> but for me, the um, I think the the poster for the film is very very cutting, as well. The one that says um, today is Harold's birthday, and of course the cowboy is his present. This is his present. And I think for, you know, for something in 1970, that itself is, uh, I mean, that's way ahead of its time. And certainly, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I've looked at this poster quite a few times and it just, it, it's quite plain, the uh, the black and white one with Harold and the cowboy. And it goes on to say, Mark Crowley's The Boys in the Band is not a musical. And that really did make me chuckle. It's like The Boys in the Band, why isn't this a musical? It seems so fitting for its title, and, and especially I, I had mentioned a bit earlier what the subject matter of the movie is, and when you read about this, when you go to IMDb, it pretty much says, 
Uh, well, let's look at IMDb right here. Tempers fray and true selves are revealed when a heterosexual accidentally intrudes a homosexual's birthday party. So even that description in the poster it really guides you and kind of makes you think that you're going to get into this tacky, stereotypical thing that, oh, it's a gay movie, so it's going to be a musical. It's going to have some sort of Judy Garland reference, and it does. It does have a Judy Garland reference, and it's fucking hysterical. It, 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 it takes every stereotype that you think you're going to move into with a, a quote-unquote gay movie and freaking uh, we don't know anything about him truly but presumably not a homosexual made something that I I, I can't say it with fever but I, I feel isn't entirely offensive to the community that I don't think he was making a movie for. I don't think he went out and said, I'm going to make a movie for gay people. He found a, a, a character study that really brought him to the subject matter. But Friedkin's a weird guy. I don't think he cares if he offends people. I don't think it matters to him. But as somebody, yeah, I, I don't think he gives a shit at all. But I, I mean, I don't know what exactly I identify as in, in this world, but for this episode, we'll say a straight guy. I, I related to every character. I, I felt a piece of myself in every person on screen, all of their strife, all of their struggles, everything that we are, are given. And that's kind of what caught me of, well, this this really is kind of the pinnacle of Friedkin, that he takes all of these people, he manipulates these emotions and these characters, but for once we're given it innocently. There's no murder, there's no rape, there's no possessions, there's no evil. It's a birthday party. And the, the people within are partying kind of <laughs> i mean everyone drinks it 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 screams that it's a it's very clearly a stage play i mm. think um i'll admit that free kin's um blocking is um is quite brilliant because it, it it's it's even though it's very clearly a stage play he he sort of transforms it into a film presentation um yeah, yeah, it's got that. I think I, from what I've seen of Friedkin, um, Harry, I think I'd agree that it is the strongest that I've seen of his. I think the source material is very strong, that of the off-Broadway show. The the cast are the original cast as well, and um, it it works perfectly. It it, it didn't. It, it's we can all relate to these characters, you know. That that's the yeah. beauty of it, and yeah. I don't think I don't think this is well known as much as it should be mm. in gay circles i don't this, i knew of it before watching it but i don't think it's got that i think it deserves a better reputation because I, I don't think it's uh it's as well known as it should be I think an issue with this movie that can push people away is is the actual 
like meat of the movie when you watch this and and i don't feel there needs to be a separation of gay or straight or who these characters are i was deeply afflicted by by especially the lead character kenneth nelson's michael it's it, it wasn't a happy performance it wasn't something that i wanted to relate to and having that invocation and being able to see wow i do that I am so guilty of that, and you look at Harold, you look at Emery, you look at Hank, you look at everyone and what they're going through. Even the character Alan McCarthy, played by Peter White, you you have a bit of yourself inside of all of it, and I really lost myself. I cried the first time I saw it, and it, it was like, wow, why, why isn't... I, I know Hamlet, I know Shakespeare, we've done With Nail and I, people know these really emotional movies. Why the fuck have I never heard of this, yet alone that it, it's been recently remade? It's a bit like uh, it's a bit like you watching Withnail and I and realizing mm. that you can relate to British people. <laughs> Withnail and I still uh, holds a lot, even with something like this, because it's just the struggle of the people. You look at these characters, and and Michael, I think, is the most enticing and interesting person, because from the very first shot of the movie, we get a look into his life. We see his bathroom, and we see all these hair tonics and all these different pills that he has. And it doesn't matter who he is as we progress through the movie and he has his first drink. And and we learn like 10, 15 minutes into the movie with a conversation with another character named Donald that he hasn't been drinking, he hasn't been smoking. 45 minutes into the movie exactly, he has his first drink. Five minutes later, he has his first cigarette. And the movie turns into this cobra bite. It's just absolutely vicious. It's filled with venom. It's almost offensive just because... You, you couldn't sit in the same room with somebody being that evil to you, that rude to you, but yet you sit through this movie wondering how these characters have this dichotomy, how they mix together, and you, you, you learn about love, you learn about friendships. Not everything is romantic. People love each other absolutely because they feel something for each other. They, they emote, and it sounds silly and stupid, but the movie is... It's a play. It's about emotion. You got to focus on those four walls. You get the impression that just despite uh, how much of a cunt he is, like <laughs> that, uh, like but you know that they'll still like, hang out with him next week and it'll probably be fine. Yeah, um, <laughs> Harold says, "I'll well, talk yes, to you tomorrow." Yeah. Constantly by Michael is is this theme of oh, how much did I drink last night? And you know that anxiety after you drink and. How much did I, what did I drink last night? And he repeats it fervently. He brings it up over and over and over again to the extent that it becomes the theme of the movie of, of you realize all of these people throughout the night will take their shots and will deal with Michael with whatever way they can because he does this. This, this is what happens. He's a vicious alcoholic, but he's not entirely wrong. It's just the way he is going about doing things that makes it very, very wrong. I've been thinking a lot about friendships um, and really thinking about the this group of men, this group of people, sort of picking and choosing which of them I would maybe want in my own life. I mean, certainly not. I mean, not Michael the way he is, because Michael is a train wreck, the lead <laughs> character. Michael is terrifying in some respects. Um, I, I want to discuss Harold. Um Leonard Frey's um, character, because for me, when um, you know it's it's Harold's um, it's party. Harold's birthday party, and for me, you know that whole sort of crescendo of it leading up to you know we've had the 
um, we've had Emery be attacked by um, Hank. Is that right? Emery. No, no it's not Hank. It's uh... Alan. Alan. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Emery being attacked by Alan, um, and then it leads to um, Harold. This brilliant crescendo of, of tension, mm. and you know the the lingering shot on Harold at the door is such a, an extreme focus on him it, it 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 almost felt very jarring that this was this shot was in a drama because to me it looked like something out of more crime or yeah. thriller in right. keeping with free yeah it looked like a very freaking introduction it to was his character yeah it was beautiful and would you mind waiting over there with the gifts well harold happy birthday you're just in time for the floor show, which, as you see, is on the floor. Don't look at it. Now it's all right. Hey, you. This is Harold. Here, now put this up on your shoulder. All right. No, it'll be ruined if you just swell up. A happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Harold. Happy birthday to you. so fucking funny life life's a goddamn laugh riot you remember life you're stoned happy birthday harold it's an extreme statement on my end here but i'm really happy you brought this up because i couldn't help it but it's in my notes i i reminded me of jaws that exact scene when they finally show him, it's like when you finally get that little point of the tail or, or the fin when Jaws Bruce shows itself in the movie and you have this absolute terror and then it's something I, I always thought it was kind of beautiful when it comes out of the water and, and it, everything splits between it and it's this natural really organic beautiful shot and you you go up and you move up onto Harold and you see his entirety and he's smoking that joint and it seems so exotic he seems like something so different than we've been exposed to in this entire party that it's it's like playing a game of clue you finally unlocked something you know really revelating and it was a really exotic beautiful scene yeah I, I'm, I'm looking back at my notes and I noticed when he came in Oh fuck! What did I say? I said a wave of energy yep. came over me for his entry. Yeah, yeah. And it, he sort of, he sort of, this sort of, sort of like an exotic bird. Ah! The way he, uh, the I mean, I, I for me that was a very special performance from Leonard Frey. He is the character I thought about the most since watching it. Apparently, he was a um, an ice skater in oh, a wow. previous. Um, well, previous career, you know, just that way he sort of almost sort of glides across the room, glides across the apartment, and yeah, I, I, he, he, he I've just thought about, <laughs> I've just thought about that character a lot. You know, the way he arrives and says, you know, makes remarks about his skin, the fact he's Jewish, the fact he's very camp, the fact he's taken a long time to get ready, fashionably late, if you will. I just, there's just, there's just something about that character. Usually, I. You know, there's a scene-stealing um, charisma to the role. I just, I, I, I can't. He, he, he's haunting me, and I don't, I don't know why he's haunting me. He's, he's just there. Well, I mean, it's, it's his party, and I, that's one of the really weird things about this movie is, is you, you're led into this belief 
that the lead character is going to be the the person whose party it is. And then once Harold is introduced, you do have this really exotic, almost peacock dance that he is shown in, in this absolutely gorgeous suit. He's got this joint, and he's not perfect. No one in the movie are, are drop-dead gorgeous models. They're all very realistic, normal actors. And, and Michael, from the beginning of the movie, has this awful problem and this fear of losing his hair, and, and it moves back and forth. Of, of this pettiness that is projected onto all the other characters directly from Michael. So by the time Harold finally is unveiled and we see who they are, we're, we're imagining absolutely so much, and then a normal person walks in, but they don't seem normal. They don't dress normal. They don't act normal. And they are. Everything about them is... They're very well-dressed. Everything's fine. But they seem so extraordinary, and I think that's a really precise setup that Friedkin has allowed us to kind of walk into those steps wondering and being misdirected. Well, what's going to happen? Something terrible is going to happen at this birthday party. And I, and yeah, something does, but these revelations aren't blood and guts or, or the normal subject. Well, I wouldn't even say the normal subject matter for, for Friedkin because most people associate him with the exorcist, but that's pretty far from, from his base of home of, of what he works in. And you have this character that kind of remains in anonymity. You you have Harold, and you're understood that it's his birthday party, and even when he gets his gift from Michael, all we know is it's a framed photo of Michael with an engraving on it. Everything around him itself is kind of this mystical shroud, and it really works for, I, I don't want to say the villain, because Michael is his own villain, but Harold works almost as that point, like a samurai movie, how you know there is some other samurai somewhere in the in the woods, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so, um, so, it, like, were this movie Enter the Ninja and Michael were Franco Nero, then uh, Harold would be Shokasugi. I mean, it's got to be said. There's some. There are. I, I I reveled in this film, to be honest. And there there are some brilliant lines. Particular again, going back to Harold. You know, Harold Harold would turn to Michael. You know, King of the Pig People. Um, <laughs> oh, is it Avery that says I'm a major drunk for this and any other season? Which which stayed with me for some reason. And oh, you remind me of a chicken wing, one of the many jabs oh, yeah. aimed at Avery, which was oh, yeah. which was quite a yeah. quite a jab, if I may say so. Um, oh man, yeah, and and and, and some of the uh, the very period appropriate casual racism as well. Mm. Like. I don't know if either of you saw the um, the twenty twenty no. version. Interesting thing when yeah. when um, oh sorry. <laughs> When Michael sings that song, I'm not gonna, you know, that Sheldon, <laughs> is it? Yeah, 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 Sheldon, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Bazing, Bazinga, Christ, Bazinga, 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 Bazinga. I'll, I'll be honest, I did spend some time, I did watch the remake. I don't think, 
personally, in my opinion, I don't think you can beat the original. I think that that's a that's well, a typical statement. Well, I mean, like, like not even, like, not 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 even if you know we're you know like you know <laughs> kissing freaking's ass as we are, but um, I mean, the original was done with the original cast. So, well, so, we come to it. Therein yeah. lies the rub. The yeah. entire cast of the remake is the Broadway. Um, oh, well, they were all in it. They were all well, in the. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I mean, but um, but who who direct? I mean, oh, it was because because um, didn't the chap die slightly before the playwright did? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mark Crowley died around yeah. the making of yeah. I just I, I think they did personally in the remake I think they did a very good job of trying to get actors that look like the original cast. I think that works more than yeah. others. I think Charlie Carver is particularly I'd say bordering on a spitting image of Cowboy. Um, yeah, Christ he is, yeah. I thought Zachary Quinto was fantastic casting and I've not seen the movie, just seeing that he appears in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, what, what I noticed was when Michael sings that racist um, song, instead of saying the N-word, the whole party sort of yells at him for a uh, moment. Right. So they skip, they yeah. essentially skip the word. Uh, okay. And that was like, ah, okay. We, Fair enough. Yeah, I'll, I'll, say, I'll, say, I'll say no more about that. But yeah, I think at least on that subject matter, when in defense of the characters of the original movie, that they're they're using something as as a common ground that everyone is gay or bisexual, and then they have this one off character in in their midst, and they're using his race as as the same back and forth that they have with each other. That no one is specifically nice. No one is, no one is like, oh hey, my gay pal. They all call each other really ridiculous names. They're always what you could assume as an outsider to be rather hateful to each other. And then you have a different mix into it. And I think it's kind of a, we hate, and well, it's not so much a kind of, when you look at the character of Michael, it's we're hating on each other to make ourselves feel better. And discussing quotes that you had brought up, I think my most favorite is one of the last in the entire movie when Michael turns and says, as my father said when I held him as he was dying, I never understood any of it, and I don't think I ever will. And it doesn't matter what you are, who you are, anything is just the most... It doesn't matter what you are or who you are. I have no idea. I, I, I can't definitively say I understand this world or what I'm doing or any extent of how my life is going. And to end the movie with just shutting the fucking door, and that's the last statement... I, I forgot about everything. I forgot about how vicious Michael was, how ugly he can be. And it, it made me reflect personally on life at that point of at the end of the night, that's all you have in your mind when you walk back to your car or when you finally get to your bed and you're passing out. God, how much did I have to drink last night? How much did they have to drink? What did I do? And you wake up and you deal with it. You wake up and you have the anxiety and it's miserable. The... um. This should be, this story, this piece should be better known because it's literally on the cusp of the Stonewall riots. I think as we come towards cruising later, you know, on the cusp of the AIDS epidemic, both of these films seem to be, they seem to be on the precipice of yes. something mm. that will vastly, vastly impact the gay community, particularly in New York and particularly around the world. Um, 
and I think yeah that just teetering they're just teetering on that edge and what am I trying to say and uh yeah the, uh, the it's, it's a view from a precipice isn't it it's uh like uh the calm before the storm it's exactly, all it's almost yes. uh, yeah. yeah well I but I don't think the calm is especially calm but the storm's gonna get mm, a lot worse mm. yeah and the, of course the metaphorical storm in the boys in the band in my opinion is the 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 metaphor the 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 idea right there is a storm everyone leaves the balcony the birthday cake is is turned into sludge the glasses break pots fall here comes the real storm here comes michael here comes the real venom of michael the toxicity that will lead to you know a, a telephone that will will wreck these men's lives if only for a night and you see how much effort was spent into setting up for the party. You've you've got that shot toward the end of the movie after Michael's anxiety attack. They walk outside and you see all these cartons of cigarettes that have been rained on and all these empty beer cans and, and everything he prepared has absolutely been laid to waste. That this beautiful, lovely evening where everyone should have been compassionate and happy was was devastatingly ruined but you can't even be mad at the guy you you can understand and un throughout the actions of all of his friends and compatriots he's struggling he has a substance abuse problem uh, amongst other things and everyone understands that though it's rather touching how no one explicitly turns on him they all have something to say back to him but no one hates him yeah, yeah. i mean you you get the idea this has happened before you know? oh totally uh, you know yeah. in I'm trying to get my words out. Sorry. Sorry. In no way do I feel like this is the first time this has happened. It mm. has happened before, and it doesn't feel like these group of friends will be moved so much as to remove them from their lives. It doesn't feel like um, Harold says, I'll, "I'll call you in the morning. I'll, I'll I'll speak to you tomorrow." And isn't that Donald? Well, they all, they all know who... Well, no, Harold does say right before he leaves that I'll call you in the morning. Um, but it, it, one thing that, that is interesting to bring up on the subject, too, is the fact that all of them know who Alan is. Everyone knows who his old college roommate is. That's a bit weird. I mean, who who talks about that that brought up? And that kind of brings you into what was that phone call about? And we really didn't bring up um, what this movie is about, aside from a bunch of gay friends are having a, a party and one straight friend shows up. But what sets that all into motion and gives this movie the Friedkin touch is this friend, the, the heterosexual friend, calls his gay friend, and he starts crying, and he tells him, I really need to talk to you. I, I, I can't wait. I have to talk to you. And he shows up to the party and all of these events and we're presuming, if you're listening to this episode, that you have seen the movie. And if you haven't, fuck off. I, <laughs> that's that's the end of me explaining what happens in this movie. We're kind of... If they haven't seen it, they're a card-carrying cunt, if I may... Uh... <laughs> the first use of the word cunt, apparently, in a North American film. You really have some history with this movie. And that might be my favorite word. Uh, cunt is perfect for all occasions. Sp speaking as British people, we we, uh, we approve of the uh, of the use of the word in this movie. I can just picture the gasps that would have been in, in yeah. the theater and the cinema just for that first. It's such a dreadful word here. And, and, and saying it and under any pretense, nine times out of 10, 
any woman is going to be offended by it. And it's really strange, the subtext that is is in the dialogue of this movie, that all, all of the characters refer to the each other as Mary or she or sisters. And it doesn't seem out of place that... I, maybe for me, I'm I'm speaking personally that it didn't seem out of place that immediately you move into these characters and then I read reviews where people struggle with this that they don't understand. Well, why are they doing that? It doesn't matter. What does it have to fucking do with the plot? It it has it's these coding. characters are speaking to one each other uh, comfortably, and it's it's in a, a level of. I don't want to say realism, but a level of realism presented on the screen that to me, it, it, none of the dialogue seemed unorganic. Everything seemed incredibly well placed to the extent that I, I don't see actors, that these people all seem real to me. I, I was completely blown away when I looked up the actor that played Emery and found out that they aren't gay, that they were one of the heterosexual actors on set and they play the most effeminate stereotypical queen as as the word is used heavily in the movie character and i don't mean to use the term offensively or out of card or out of place but maybe i did we'll get to that in the email we'll we'll deal with that later emery is a is a very very interesting character to decipher um i think you know the word camp the word camp is thrown about a lot in gay circles, about it's it's a good thing, it's a bad thing. Camp is there, and camp has always been there, particularly in gay circles. I think what what the script tries to do as well is the it does use artifice, you know, it's a very sophisticated, it's a very it's a very well-poised screenplay. And you know, the the whole thing about camp being um is a mask. Camp is the the point of seriousness to absurdity. It's the point of being over dramatic to the point of absurdity, to the point of abstraction. And it's inter- it's it's so interesting to see a character like Emery, who is himself, but he, he is also ridiculed, but he's comfortable in the ridicule because of the set of friends he's got. Mm. Uh, that kind of takes us back to the subject of racism within the film because you have an African-American character and more specifically than anyone else, Emery and this character go back and forth and a lot of the dialogue, a lot of what these characters say back to each other comes back to us where Michael is upset about it, where he's been called out for his racist comments and we learn specifically through the character that, no, I let Emery say this because all of you pick on Emery. All of you do is, is make him feel bad so now... We have we, we can be equals because he makes fun of me through being an African-American. And that kind of brings us deeper into the beyond of this movie. It's not necessarily it, it, it's heavily about sexuality, but it doesn't focus and, and dive into that realm. I think Friedkin really wanted and I'm speaking for him, but I, I think he really wanted to make a really transgressive movie. I think he wanted to bringing up fucking pricks like Andy Warhol, do something before that weird theater of the bizarre that Warhol did with D'Alessandro and all of his stars where he just kind of put people up for their five minutes of fame. He presented five minutes of emotion for all of these normal stereotypes of people. Uh, Every single person in this movie is, I've said it before, is us, is you. Every single part, even the regret of of making a phone call you shouldn't have made or admitting the love of someone you absolutely loved, it all comes to such a weird primordial essence 
I almost find this to be the most uncomfortable Friedkin movie to sit down and watch because you really have to face yourself by the end of the film. Nothing else makes you question who you are. Well, to live and die in LA does, but that's it. We already did that one, so. I need to watch like, that. I need to watch that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's wonderful. Yeah, Linus like, has been telling me to watch that. Sorry, go on. Uh, yeah, like, you. the um, uh, as it went on the. Uh, the telephone game kind of reminded me of the uh, the blood test scene from the thing. <laughs> in really? Oh wow! Yeah, fuck. I I it, it's and it's. A... Hold on, let me compose that thought. <laughs> it's a, it's an outing, isn't it? Yes, and it totally. Is, yeah. Al Alan is another such a fascinating character. I mean, the you you said um, essentially a straight character. I mean, it's. There's only ever been ambiguity about whether he was yes. bi, gay, straight. Yeah. It's up to us. I think each in ourselves, we we think about what Alan is. I mean, you know, I've always said I would never want to speak about someone's sexuality. You know, outing is such a horrible word, really. And and, and that devastating phone call when the realisation, you know, spoilers, that, that Michael is taking the phone from Alan and, and it's Alan's wife. Mm. And, you know, the walls could have just melted away in that moment. And, and the parties over go home. Yeah. For me, that wasn't even the biggest hit. The thing that was really devastating for me, it was almost a precursor to this, was the the game between Hank and Larry. Is is you have a really interesting duo that, that they love each other. Absolutely. They live with each other. And you would assume that you, know, you live with somebody, you guys are moving into a bigger part of your relationship, and one of the duo uh, doesn't want to be held down. They want to be able to do what they want to do, and it comes to this really beautiful scene where one calls the other's message line and says, I love you, and this is an era where a man shouldn't be able to say that because they're going to get dragged down the street and tarred and feathered and treated like they're not normal. And and what... and and. To cover my ass there, I said a man shouldn't be able to say that. I don't mean fucking a man shouldn't be able to say that. I'm looking at when this movie was made and the era that this movie is taking place in. The early 1970s, another man openly saying to another, I love you. In the United States, you're you're going to get tarred and feathered. You're going to get fired from your job. You're going to be treated differently and like you're a, a bad person because you love somebody. And that one one word, just saying, no, I, I know what I was saying. I love you. Make that the message. That turned the movie on its heels for me because you have all of this, this, these different machines inside of this cog, and you look inside of all of these different people, and there is something absolutely beautiful about that. It doesn't matter if you're together forever. It doesn't matter if you are soulmates or something like that. In that moment, those two people loved each other. And in that moment, that one thing on screen, we got to experience that. We got to feel those two people's love as they're in the other room holding the phone. And I thought all of that, every way it was shot, every angle, how we would cut from one person to the next, and we would see Larry hanging with the phone in his hand and sweating, and, and we can tell they're drunk and they're all upset. We truly were exposed to like the bare bones of love and emotion, and then directly move into such a vicious, just, uh, it's like a murder sequence. I mean, he just stabs Alan over and over and over and over again just to learn that none of his wounds were fatal. 
he killed himself and then you have the enti- then you have the anxiety attack sequence with Michael and that's fucking fuck Marlon Brando that's the greatest goddamn acting on the planet that was beautiful just screaming I can't take a Valium you can't mix booze and downers just this Judy Garland death fucking scene it's it's beautiful yeah, it's quite a thing you go from like alright he, he's um this this likable asshole in in a sort of wood nail mold, <laughs> and the, um, the then becomes an an out fucking villain, mm. and then like his entire world collapses, and you watch him crumble, and it's fucking heart wrenching. Uh, you love him by the end of it. You you feel every spectrum of emotion because of Michael. You you feel love, hate, regret, dismissal. And then that last scene of the film with him on his knees, I can't take this, I can't do this. Uh, we've all been there. And you can't lie to yourself, I, I've never thought that. Every single one of us on this fucking planet has gotten to a point where you think you can't do it anymore, and you cry, and you're broken. And not all of us are lucky enough to have someone who loves you unconditionally. And that may be the actual, the focal point of this movie is unconditional love. And we were talking about this earlier, but it's obvious this has happened before. These people have dealt with Michael's behavior, but they love him. They unconditionally love him and want his quality of life to be better. And that's the boys in the band. That's, I mean, how how lucky could you be to have a group of fucking people that want you to succeed, no matter how much of a fuck up you are? There's something really beautiful about it. <laughs> a um, a bit of deep deep diving into the actual cast of the. Um, it turns out that most of the actors in it um, did die of AIDS. Uh, that kind of, I had a horrible sinking feeling when um, I looked at that fact. Uh, several of the cast members still prove to be um, fascinating to this day. Reuben Green as as Bernard, um, his whereabouts to this day are still unknown. He's been off the radar for a couple of years. No one knows where he is. Um, Robert Dilla Dilla Tournier as the cow as Cowboy Tex. Um, he is his career essentially got ruined because of this film. He got typecast. He became a a model. Um, died of AIDS as well. Um, wrote a very scathing memoir. He claimed uh, Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken had a uh, a, a rendezvous uh, the night Natalie Wood died. There is some there is some serious tea, some scalding hot fucking tea involved with these stories that Robert Latournier wrote. He died quite young, and yeah, it's just it just just to, to see doing a bit of research just to see that most of the actors did die prematurely of AIDS as well. Really, I just, I, I felt quite numb. It, it really yeah. kind of yeah. made me feel like, well, fuck. It, it got to me. It upset me terribly. And to even capitalize on that, I don't think any of these talents lived past 1995. I, I think the actor that played Emery died uh, in their 60s in the late 2000s of, or not late 2000s, in two thousand mid two thousands of cancer. I know um Tony Kushner, the playwright, he um he wrote Angels in America. That was kind of a very oh, right. well a huge um what was it called? A queer, a gay fantasia on national themes. About a seven hour play, two evenings. 
quite it's quite dense. That that they did do a TV miniseries. Al Pacino was in it. That's a nice yeah, tie-in. Yeah. Meryl <laughs> Meryl Streep played about seven different characters. She played a rabbi. Emma Thompson played a homeless person as well as a nurse and an angel. I watched that when I was relatively young, but I knew the impact of it, particularly the last few um the last few lines, again based on a play. Kushner was always glowing about the boys in the band, and I think I think the boys in the band is a lot more accessible than Angels in America by any standard. But um... I read something recently that apparently, uh, and I, I might have this all wrong, and I will not fix it in post. I'll just keep it wrong. I, I believe Harry Styles made a statement recently about, I don't understand why gay sex is shown in movies as almost fetishistic. And then somebody made a point to show that there really aren't a lot of movies that portray gay sex whatsoever. And it uh, reading this about a week ago, it made me start to think about the boys in the band. And this movie has absolutely no portrayal of sexuality whatsoever. But even if it did, I, looking at Friedkin, and this could possibly be a segue into the next movie, he has this he almost treats sex as an adornment. When he puts it in a movie, it's almost like he's pinning it onto the movie, and it doesn't really have anything to do with it, and it's it's incredibly natural. To live and die in L.A., we have a scene where, full frontal, you see William Peterson's fucking dick, it's just hanging out, and it's treated exactly as you would female nudity. And there is a heavy difference between male and female nudity, getting to my point here, Friedkin manages to to manipulate and use that to an extent of naturality. And I'm not daring suggest that there is anything sexual about being gay. I don't think because you're gay, and that's going to come up in a little bit here when we get into the next movie, but Friedkin might believe things like that. The boys in the band presents the most comfortable example, I think, of any normal get together and i know i've i've brought this up and i guess it's my nail hitting the or hammer hitting the nail statement i find nothing expressly about this movie to be gay i i find it to be the most overwhelming example of real life and it's it's very strange to me i guess in my thought process that people have a, a problem watching this movie because the fucking characters are gay i don't get that I don't understand what separates you. I think there's two band camps, really, uh, when it comes to... I don't want to generalise, you know, sort of gay identity. One... Um, how can I... How can I work... How can I... How can I season this? Sort of one band camp is the... the to be gay is maybe exceptional. And the other side is the normality, the, the triviality of being gay. I think that this this is where the film exceeds very well, is that is that it is just portrayed as a group of men meeting up for a birthday party. And I remember a few years ago we um we have you know we have pride in um in Wales in Cardiff. A, a Welsh speaking friend she turned to me. She wasn't um a member of the LGBT. She wasn't of LGBT plus identity. She turned to me, and excuse me, I'm quite gassy, sorry. She turned to me and said, I, I don't understand the reason for pride. And that blew my mind. And I was a bit irked. And, I, and you know, as she was a Welsh speaker, and I said, what is the point of the Eisteddfod? What is the what is the reason for? So that, so the two of us are sort of volunteering for a local organisation. And there we are sat in a booth debating 
about the point of pride and and it's it's a tough thing because one I understand the sort of um the identity the identity is the normalizing of it and the, the maybe the trivializing but people want to you know I'm coming out pe- people want to they want to stand out that's the point of camp that's the point of drag that's the point of vamp that I hope I'm making myself clear I hope I haven't yeah, like, uh, uh I mean like like I I I I I take both your points like uh I, th- this is a movie about a, a bunch of friends and it could be a bunch of friends um, from any sort of background because because mm. the dynamics between the friends could are universal but the this particular group of friends their you know their uh, their identity is quite key to the way they interact with yeah, each other. I'm, and, and um, sorry to interpose uh, line is that the way they I mean they attempt to change their behaviour when Alan arrives but they fail and they fail majestically same with La Cage aux Folles same with the birdcage the heterosexual the heterosexual the heterosexual mask if you will is that right I've got someone coming that isn't one of us per se essentially act normal that that that's the feeling i get from it and they fail mis they fail miserably because of this the way alan is alan arrives in a penguin suit of the um the white tie you know i, I there are many times i've related to alan who who is in many in many many ways the straight character um when but- you look at those characters one one thing just to kind of speak out because where we're going i think is a great venue but it i don't think it's alan alan is the odd man that's coming in he had nothing to do with this he didn't tell anyone you have to act a certain way it was michael that said you have to act a certain way and at the end of the film what we have is this revelation with his character study is it is his catholic guilt his his apartment is adorned with different versions and pictures of saints and it's brought up several times you know you choose to believe and what you want to believe in, that you sit on the fence. Sometimes you will defend yourself that, oh yes, religion is true, sometimes you don't care about it, you don't care about anything. And the last statement that we have between Michael and Harold is is Harold pretty much telling him, you, you are a self-hating person. You hate yourself because you're a homosexual and will never once accept the fact that you're gay and there's fucking nothing you can do about it, that's who you are. And the statement kind of op-ended there isn't, it, it, it very, and I, I this is my trouble with talking about a movie like this. I don't want to say this has nothing to do with homosexuality. It, 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 it very much does. And everything you're allowed your own interpretations to, but I feel at the end of this movie, yes, homosexuality is a big importance, but what Harold says to him is you don't fucking know who you are. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. You still don't know who you are. You can't love yourself. How could you love anybody if you can't love yourself and and at the beginning of the film we learn all he does is travel around the country to different bathhouses he's very luxurious he cares about sex not himself and yeah michael's a bit of a slut but that's not the point of who he is but we're led into this belief that he's just kind of like a, a, a slut that doesn't care about anything and he cares about everything so fucking much it's destroyed him one of the last quotes I noted is um, the line uh, if we could just not hate ourselves so much 
which is kind of the mm. crux of the movie. Um, and and in this movie, it, it's you know, a, that that's in context of a bunch of um, gay guys in the yeah. era they were in. Yeah, but, but yeah, that absolutely. could be that could be anyone, anytime, anywhere. Like it's it's a it's a universal theme. I mean, I think it's specifically applied. I I would say that that is almost a crying statement to everyone that couldn't ever come out and say that they're gay. But at the same time, you hear that statement. It's like, yeah, I fucking wish I didn't hate myself so much either. I, I get you. But it's the performance. It's what you're getting in that scene is this man who has been so vicious. I mean, he's like a whip. I mean, you, you can take this character and say he's the whip in the Indiana Jones movies. He's just this vicious fucking thing slashing through everyone. He's the knife in the slasher movie. He he is the point that is destroying and killing and intruding on these victims. He's putting himself inside of them. He really is the bad guy. And you have this broken moment where you realize, well, we're we're all the bad guy. We can all be that way. And I, I hope that there's a moment of, of humanization in that scene when you can watch it and you can kind of break with him. I find it hard to sit through that and not cry, not not feel that burning tear in your nose and eyes and know, like, yeah, fuck, that's, <laughs> that's one hell of a performance at least. Yeah, I think I think we've run, I think we've run out, r- rung the boys in the band. I think we've. Uh... But uh, yeah, um, well, I'd never heard of it before we uh, mm. talked last time. So like, like a uh, nice one for uh, for bringing it up. All of this came into play because, uh, and it's really I would blame Linus' fault that you wanted to do. The best of William Friedkin. And I just felt, you know what? I can't fucking say that unless I've seen every goddamn movie this guy has done. And now I've seen them all and I'm sad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You've got many regrets. I'm depressed. I'm very, very depressed. And that's, it's, it's not, it's, ah, fuck. William Friedkin is, is a really bizarre animal. And I, I don't know if he even likes being a director. I don't know if he likes anything. After watching his movies, I have a really hard time digesting. Like, uh, Linus brought up that I need to see Killer Joe, and and on my mission to see every single William Friedkin film, I watched Killer Joe. And that that movie fucked me up, man. That movie really has upset me, and it's not like a Serbian film. It's not like August Underground. Friedkin seems to like to do the stage play. He started with Pinter. I'm sure at the birthday party and Tracy Letts, yeah, Bug as well. If yeah. I'm not mistaken, yeah, yeah, that's right. and yeah, again, more I need to watch. Well. 
that brings us to the end of this episode and the end of this installment of Friedkin Crazy. Death by DVD does the work of William Friedkin, the boys in the band. That's a mouthful. That was a lot of words. If nothing offended you on this episode, just wait until next week. This episode originally was four hours long. We talk about the boys in the band for one hour, and then we talk about cruising for a whopping three hours. It's a big fat load. It also is a mouthful. It's a lot. A lot. And if you would like to hear the entire thing uncircumcised or uh, uncut, uncut is what I, I meant to say, uncut, if you would like to hear the entire thing uncut in all of its glory, you can. The entire four hours is available for your listening displeasure on our official Patreon. Just visit www.deathbydvd.com to find out more. Also, be sure to find our new host, James Ellis, on social media, Weeping Tudor Productions. Find them and follow them today on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can also check out the Who's Who page on DeathByDVD.com and find links to all of those socials. So that's it until next week. We got Friedkin fever and the only cure, incidentally, is more Friedkin. Next week, we go cruising. Until then, the ashtray is full and the bottle empty. Pleasant tomorrow. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building.